Welcome to the Cynicism Podcast, where we will talk to experts from around the world to help us all better understand China. I am Bill Bishop, and I write Cynicism, a newsletter that helps you get smarter about China. Thank you for listening to the inaugural Cynicism Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about U.S.-China relations, the upcoming sixth plenum, Xi Jinping, and what we might expect for the next year heading into the 20th Party Congress, among other topics. I'm really pleased that our first guest for the Cynicism Podcast is Chris Johnson, CEO of Consultancy China Strategies Group, senior fellow at the Center for Strategic International Studies, and former senior China analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency. Welcome, Chris. Great to be here, Bill. So, Chris, welcome. I think today, uh, what I really like to start out with is just an overview of where you see the state of U.S.-China relations and how uh, the new administration, I mean, it's 10 months now or thereabouts, but how the new administration is doing and how the Xi Jinping administration is reacting. Well, it's obviously a unique time in uh, U.S.-China relations. I guess if I had to characterize it in a phrase, I would say things are a bit of a mess. (laughs) I think if we... uh, (laughs) I think it's useful to start at a sort of high order level and then work our way down in terms of thinking about the relationship. So I think at the highest order, one of the things that strikes me is that arguably for the first time since normalization of relations, really, we're in this strange position where I think both countries, both leaders, and perhaps increasingly even both peoples aren't overly keen to engage with one another. You know, I think we've had times in the past during the last several decades where maybe one side or the other was feeling that way, but not both. And the sense that I get in terms of the leader to leader view is both Xi Jinping and President Biden are kind of looking at each other and saying, I've got a lot going on at home. I'm very focused on what's happening uh, domestically. I know the other guy's out there and I need to pay attention to what he's doing. And right now it's all just he's. But if I can kind of keep him at arm's length, that's okay with me. Um, And I think we're kind of seeing that really on on both sides of the fence. I think for Xi Jinping, it's a little more intense in that it's it's hard to see what where the good outcomes are for him and trying to lean in toward the relationship and so on, because he's kind of getting what he wants to some degree without doing so. As to your question about how the administration is doing, you know, I think to be fair, I think we have to say probably about as well as they could, uh, given both the domestic constraints and what we might call China's own attitudes and approach uh, toward the relationship right now. You know, on the domestic side, by constraints, I mean, the administration, from my perspective, seems to have an almost neurologically fearful stance of being seen as weak on China. Obviously, that comes out of four years of the Trump administration and its approach toward China, stories and tales uh, and recreations of history about how engagement was a failure and how the Obama administration was somehow a uh, a main, you know, uh, group that failed to understand the reality of the relationship and therefore blew it. Um, and a lot of those people are back now. And I think that contributes to this fear. And I think the practical impact of that is that it's inhibited the administration from doing what I think they need to do, which is to have sort of an objective racking and stacking of what they believe China's global ambitions actually are. And then I think critically beyond that, which of those ambitions the U.S. can live with, because in my assessment, we're going to have to live with at least some of them. And then to be fair to the administration, I think that same needed exercise has been hamstrung by China's own approach, which at least so far, I think we could probably characterize as an unflinching insistence 
that the U.S. must adjust its, uh, as they like to call it, hostile attitude uh, if progress is going to be made. And, you know, it's my sense that there's really little chance of progress if China's unwilling to move off of that stance. But at the same time, I think their assessment is that it's working. In other words, by maintaining that sort of very strict line, they've gotten Madame Meng of Huawei fame home. They've gotten uh, the trade discussions going again. They've got the U.S. saying, well, we might lengthen the timeline for you to implement phase one. You know, in other words, it's working from their perspective. Right. And they got they they presented two lists, right, to yes. Deputy Secretary of State Sherman. Exactly. And uh, it certainly seems like there are some of the things on that list that are being worked through. Yeah. To follow up, though, what do you think the administration is doing around Taiwan? Because it seems like in, over the last couple of weeks, we've had quite a, a push from Secretary of State Blinken and others on uh, Taiwan and sort of whether or not it's giving them, you know, returning them to the UN or in a, in a seat or at least giving them more participation in UN bodies. What do you think is driving that? And, and what do you think realistically the administration believes the outcome is going to be? Because it certainly seems to be touching the most sensitive point on the Chinese side. Yeah. Well, my sense of it is that regardless of the administration's intention, and I'm not entirely sure what the intention is, the results in Beijing are the same, you know, which is to say that there will be a perception there that the U.S. is unilaterally making a change to what they see as the cornerstone of the bilateral relationship, which is the U.S. Um, adherence to the one China policy. Um, and if you're sitting in Beijing shoes and you're hearing, you know, you're seeing things in the press, you're hearing the president himself say, well, we will defend Taiwan. Oops, we didn't mean to say that. Twice, <laughs> but, twice. But it wasn't. But I didn't misspeak, you know, and, and these sort of things. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the domestic. You know, look, the Chinese have never doubted that the U.S. would probably mount some kind of a defense, you know. So it's not really that issue if, if the Chinese were to attack. It's the accumulation of what they see as salami slicing erosion of the U.S. commitment to the one China policy. And so in my mind, the only relevant element here is not really the motivations, but what's going on in Xi Jinping's mind? Can he see all of this activity and basically respond by you know making the appropriate judgment about this erosion in the one china policy and then quietly taking the appropriate adjustments on war planning and on you know other other things or does he feel that with the accumulation of these things whether it's you know the debate over whether or not to break with strategic ambiguity changing the name of the of Taiwan's de facto embassy in Washington you know all these sort of things does he feel that he needs to do something demonstrative now you know to kind of reset the balance which was really the motivation behind their uh, military exercises in 1995-96 for example when Lee Dunhui came to the United States and of course, back then they had far less capabilities than they do now. And, exactly. And I mean, certainly, I've heard different things and and looked at different reports, but it does sound like the PLA has advanced quite rapidly in areas that they would be able to bring to bear to deal with Taiwan from their perspective. Yes. One of the things I worry about is just that there's a, it's certainly in some quarters in DC, it seems like there's a belief in the US military power that may not be fully rooted in the new realities of the sort of PLA modernization campaign that really has, I think, dramatically accelerated and been much more efficient right under Xi Jinping. Yeah, definitely. And primarily, the to the degree there's been a chief uh, innovation under Xi's leadership, it was 
they've finally taken the steps to address what we might call the software issues. In other words, the technology, the hardware, the shiny kit has been being developed since that 95, 96 period. And they've got some very interesting and capable systems now, but the software, the ability to actually conduct joint operations, you know, these sort of things, um, was always a, a fall down point for them and the massive restructuring of the PLA's force structure, much along the lines of sort of Goldwater Nichols uh, that she launched uh, early in his tenure is now bearing a lot of fruit and making them more capable from that sort of software side of things as well. And that restructuring, that was something that the PLA or, or that, that they talked about doing before, right? But it had never... Yeah. No other leader had been able to push it through, right? Correct. Even Deng Xiaoping, who himself tried to do sort of a similar restructuring uh, in the aftermath of Tiananmen and in the aftermath of the Young period. That's interesting. I remember we talked when the, she convened the, the second Gutian meeting um, with all the generals that clearly in retrospect was the kickoff to, to I think, a massive corruption crackdown inside mm-hmm. the PLA. No, I, I call it uh, political shock and awe, right, which was the twin uh, aspect of force restructuring and the anti-corruption campaign in the military, which basically broke the back of the PLA's political power in the system, from my perspective. Interesting. So, well, now moving on to politics, mm-hmm. we have the sixth plenum that starts on the 8th of November, I believe. Yes. Can you talk a bit about why those plenums are important and what might be especially interesting about this one. Yeah. Because one of the things that we keep hearing about, and certainly uh, there are rumors, but there's also, I think, some certainly the way they described the the agenda for the plenum in the official Xinhua release a couple of weeks ago, it sure sounds like they're going to push through a third historical resolution. Yeah. No, my sense is that's a foregone conclusion pretty much at this point. You know, to your first question about why plenums are important, I, in my mind, I think they're important both mechanically and substantively, right? Mechanically, having one once a year since the reform and opening period started, really, and really per the requirement in the party's constitution, right, that that happened once a year, that has been fundamental, I think, to signaling both domestic audiences and international audiences that things in China are relatively stable. Right. So just look at the brouhaha that occurred, for example, in this current Central Committee cycle that we're in, the 19th Central Committee, where Xi Jinping snuck in effectively uh, an extra plenum early in the process in early 2018 to get the changes to the Constitution about term limits put out there, right. which then meant they had to advance the third plenum from its normal position in that that fall, you know, after a party Congress um, to the usual second plenum, which manages the National People's Congress changes, personnel changes and so on. And then a perception that the fourth plenum, therefore, had been, quote unquote, delayed because it was more than a year before it actually took place. And you'll recall as well, and we talked about it at the time, all the speculation, oh, this means Xi Jinping's in trouble and, you know, so on and so forth. Nonsense from my point of view. So that's the mechanical aspect. Substantively, obviously, I think they're important because outside of the political work report that the sitting party general secretary delivers at the five yearly party congresses, the decision documents, as they're usually called, that come out of the plenums really reflect the most authoritative venue for the party leadership to signal their priorities, uh, their preoccupations, and, and the policies, of course. And of course, there have been some very important plenums in the party's history, uh, you know, most notably the third plenum of the 11th Central Committee, which, uh, you know, 
the, at least the official version is that's when reform and opening was launched. There's a lot of debate about whether that's true or not. But turning to the upcoming sixth plenum, uh, I think they have made it, as I said a moment ago, pretty clear that uh, there will be a history resolution. Obviously, there's only been two previous ones in the history of the party, one in 1945 by Mao Zedong and the other in 1981 from Deng Xiaoping, largely closing the book on the Mao period and, and the Cultural Revolution and so on. So from my perspective, if they do do it this time, and I think they will, it's important for several reasons. The first, I think, is that it would represent, I think, the next evolution in what I call Xi Jinping's further development of his leadership supremacy. And, you know, I use those terms very deliberately because oftentimes the shorthand we see in describing this as references to Xi's consolidation of power. Well, in my mind, uh, that took place very early on, you know, in, in his tenure. I think he's been there for a good long while. And so this is just about further articulating his leadership supremacy. And indeed, I think, you know, his genius really from the beginning was to frame the party's history in these three distinct eras, right? Uh, each roughly 30 years from the founding of the PRC to Mao's death, Deng's reform and opening period, and now Xi Jinping's so-called new era. And in fact, I think his signature political achievement, among many political achievements that he's had, has been to canonize that framing, these three epochs, under the banner of Xi Jinping thought on Chinese characteristics uh, for the uh, new era. So long, I can never remember the name. <laughs> let's just let's just call it Xi Thought and get it over with. Xi Jinping Thought for for, for shorthand, yes. Um, and I think he used it to both effectively erase his two immediate predecessors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, from right. history, which is important, and also simultaneously to vault past Deng Xiaoping in the pantheon of ideology by getting the eponymous thought, right? And of course, the next iteration will be to truncate Xi Jinping right. thought for horribly long name <laughs> down to just... And there are multiple variants. There's thought on diplomacy, there's thought on economics, there's thought on, you know, yes. law. Got to consolidate all of that. And, and I think the other thing is this ideological crowning, obviously, the significance of it lies in the codification and probably the legitimization then of the sum of all of his actions and pronouncements since he came to power. And the equating of those developments and those statements with the party's line, right? And as you and I have discussed many times, to criticize Xi now then is not just to attack the man, but to attack the party itself. That's very dangerous. And if you're going to do it, you better get it right. To that point, isn't that part of his political genius? Because that must have been by design, right? Oh, absolutely. It was completely by design. And there was a reason, I think, why... She, amongst recent leaders, was the one who, if you spoke to people, for example, in the parties, uh, the Central Committee Department for Party History Research, right, they would say when he was vice president, uh, leader in training, he actually cared about party history. You know, Jiang and who didn't really care, you know, or at least it wasn't a, a priority for them. It was very meaningful for Xi Jinping, I think, for those reasons. And so this new history resolution, I think, is important in helping him continue this process toward the next evolution, which is to truncate to, to Xi Jinping thought. I think, you know, in terms of the substance of a new resolution, it's my sense that there's a tension, not just in Xi's mind, but perhaps in the leadership circles of the people who are working on this thing, between a desire to make that document, you know, only celebratory and forward-looking, in other words, why the new era is so amazing, right? Right. <laughs> Versus a desire to tidy up, if you will, some of the bits from history that he doesn't like with criticism, which, of course, 
in a very similar fashion to say Deng Xiaoping's 1981 when criticizing the excesses of the Cultural Revolution. So in my mind there, there's two aspects where that criticism uh, could come to the fore, which are very valuable. The first is, will he do in effect to Deng what Deng did to Mao, which is to criticize the excesses of Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening policies, right? Which would be including criticizing then, at least indirectly, uh, who and Jiang who are still alive, right? Oh, well, we'll come back to that in a minute because I think it's a separate animal. But but on the on the reform and opening piece, it very much relates, obviously, to common prosperity, to the new development concept, to everything we've been seeing right over the last uh, several months. But I think there's a separate aspect from that kind of economic excesses. There is this line. I, it was a, there was a very fascinating. You know, you never want to put too much emphasis on one piece of propaganda, but uh, I believe it was the 24th of September, People's Daily had uh, their latest iteration in the Xi Jinping thought uh, question and answer series. And it was about kind of party leadership and so on and so forth. And there was a fascinating line in there, in my mind, which was especially after the 18th Party Congress, in view of, quote, the neglect, dilution, and weakening of the party's leadership for a period of time. (laughs) Now, what period of time is he talking about? He's talking about the tenures of Jiang Zemin and and Hu Jintao. So once again, further erasing them from history, boosting his own stature, and creating a justification for him to certainly rule for a third term. And, you know, who knows beyond that. And and having a historical resolution, the third one, then really does create the third era, right? Correct. It formalizes the kickoff, if you will, of of that new era. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I I struggle with sort of lots of the rumors, oh, she's weak, or that he's up, or he's down, or there's, you know, there's the latest one is he won't travel abroad because he's worried (laughs) about a coup. Yes. Which I... You know, hey, it's Chinese politics. Maybe it's true, but it 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 seems a little uh, bit of a stretch to me. But I look at you know again back to his. You know, you hear lots of things, and certainly when I was in Beijing, and for probably not now because they're all, you know, but back then the Beijing chattering class was oh he he was never the smart guy. He was always kind of kind of slow, and yet <laughs> yet here we are, and here he is, and. And so I think, you know, he may not be the best educated of Chinese leaders in some formal perspective, but he certainly seems to be as politically savvy as Deng or Mao. I mean, he yeah. certainly seems to have surpassed uh, uh, Jiang and Hu. But I yeah. think one of the things, too, right, it, back to this question of is he is he weak or will he be around? You know, what's going to happen to the 20th plenum? Uh-huh. One of the things I go back to is, is you know, when he got Xi, Xi Jinping thought and a pen, whatever you want behind it, it's a 19 party Congress. Doesn't that basically mean, though, that as long as he's alive, he's kind of the man? Or because yes, oh, even if someone else has the job title, unless the party changes his line and gets rid of she thought, which seems like it would be extremely difficult uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Ultimately, he as long as he's breathing, isn't really he kind of running the show or is that yes. too simplistic? Very much the case. And in fact, again, his interest in not just uh, Chinese Communist Party history, but the communist movement's history, you can have no Khrushchev secret speech <laughs> if you do these sort of things, at least while he's alive, you know, to your point. And uh, I, I think that's a very important aspect of what he's trying to do here. He's creating the conditions for him to be able to engage, you know, to use, steal Barry Naughton's term for the economy, grand steerage of the entire system. You know, um, and and I think that's a, a very, very important aspect. And just to your point on the intellectual stuff, because I think it's important. 
you know, there's a difference between book smarts and political street fighting skills. And probably he, you know, his education was disrupted, right? So probably right. He, he may not be God's gift to intellect, but uh, there's no question in my mind that from a political acumen point of view, he's a genius, uh, a tactical genius. And if you think about what his primary book education was when he was in his most formative years, it was malthought. Yeah, no, definitely so. And and I just want to come back to that too, because I think it's so important on what could be the, the meaning, if you will, of this new history resolution, which is that Xi Jinping clearly has a problem with the period of the 90s and what I affectionately like to call the, the early noughties <laughs> in, in both of Otherwise known as the, the go-go days. Being zeros and, and being naughty. Yeah, the Wild West days. And I think he feels also that the period in the run-up to when he took power uh, ahead of the uh, the Party Congress in 2012, he in many ways saw that as the period of maximum danger for the party, right? And so this will be criticized. You know, there's no way in my mind there won't be some mention of, you know, our friends Bush, Eli, and you know the, the characters that were purged at that time. Right. Maybe not specifically, but in the in the sideline propaganda and so on. I'm sure it will come up. Well, you talked about the resolution, I mean, and, and what will be in it and sort of how do you balance the criticism or judgment on the past 30 years with forward looking? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I found it interesting in yesterday's People's Daily, I had it in the newsletter yesterday, was that very long piece by it's the, the, the sort of the pen name for the People's Daily Theory Department on yes. Chinese style modernization, which was very forward looking, but also very global looking in terms of talking about how you know China has created this new style of modernization and how it can be sort of a, applicable to other countries. Yeah. And so tying that back a little bit to your earlier comment about trying to understand, you know, as you said, the, the, the Biden administration is a rack and stack. How do we sort of go through what we think their global, the PRC's global ambitions are and what can we live with and what we can't? Yeah. What do you think their global ambitions are? Well, you know, uh, there are a series of them. Certainly it is to, in their region, certainly, and we can talk, you know, there's endless debate about whether it extends globally and if so, on what timeline, but they certainly want to be seen as a major superpower, no question. I often like to say that their goal in the region, certainly, and I think increasingly globally, is that they want countries, when a country is thinking of doing something significant in terms of its policies, the leadership and Xi Jinping himself would like that country's leadership to think about how Xi Jinping going to react to this in the same moment that they think about how will the U.S. react to this. You know, that's what they're after in, in my mind, you know, as to whether it is a desire to subvert the rules based global international order and so on. I, I'm much more skeptical, I think, than a lot of our colleagues on that, uh, in part because implicit in that is this notion of you know, them sitting around in the Politburo meetings, stroking long beards and looking 50 years into the future. You know, they they have an inbox too, and <laughs> they're not infallible, nor are they prescient all the time. And 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 I just think that, you know, um is is too much of a teleological view, you know, from 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 my point of view. But that's certainly one of them. And and I think this ties to the history resolution bill because you know, she in my mind needs or wants kind of three things from that. The 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 first is he too needs to create a justification for staying in power. You know, the reality is no one can stop what he's trying to do next year, or at least that's my opinion. But what they can do is build leverage for the horse trading for all the other positions that will be in play if he can be criticized. You know, as someone I spoke to about this situation put it to me, 
even Mao had to launch the Cultural Revolution to take control of the party again, right? In other words, you know, the, even someone of his stature had to do that. Second, and it touches on what we were just discussing, is his obsession with China breaking through the middle income trap to further prove the legitimacy, right, of, of the country. And that means breaking from the old economic model. And third, also relevant to our comments just now, is he sees all of this as intimately bound to what we might call the global narrative competition with the U.S. You know, in other words, right. if he can be seen as breaking through the middle income trap, doing a better job than the West on income inequality and so on, he sees that paying tremendous dividends for, for validating China's system. At least so far on dealing with COVID, it's paid dividends. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and indeed further uh, legitimizing the notion that they have found some third way between capitalism and socialism that not just works for them, but increasingly could be exportable. Right. So so it's not like everyone has to become a Marxist-Leninist exactly. country or, or di- people's dictatorship, but that, you know, we have this China solution, I think they call it, right? And yes. certainly, you know, one thing that's interesting too, I think is, and it hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet in um, more mainstream media is this global development initiative that she announced at his speech to the UN in September, yeah. which now he is regularly bringing up um, in his calls with developing countries. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, it's looks to me like it's effectively, it's a way of packaging up the, their lessons from the poverty alleviation campaign that, that they declared victory in earlier this year and trying to take that global. And, and quite honestly, you know, the world needs more positive development. And, and if China's offering something that's reasonably attractive in the U.S. Or, or Europe isn't, then how can the U.S. criticize these countries for signing on to it? No, I mean, increasingly, it, we always want to say, well, nobody wants to sign on to, to their model or, you know, it, it doesn't work in other places. But increasingly, what's the narrative that they're touting, right? One of it is, hey, we brought X hundred million people out of poverty. That's very attractive, you know, to to some other countries. We have a system that works. We have a system that is tolerant of, you know, various and sundry approaches, uh, doesn't insist that you change your governance structure or that you support human rights or, or uh, avoid graft and, you know, things like this. It's very attractive. But, you know, the Global Development Initiative, I think in my mind, increasingly, it's sort of like an, an agglomeration of the BRI aspects. And then there's been so much attention in recent weeks uh, about, you know, uh, particularly Wang Huning's uh, dream weaving of, you know, um, cultural hegemony and and all of these sort of things and cultural hegemony. Yeah, I, I think, I think, People are a bit over-indexing a bit on Wahuning. He's clearly important, but I know they are. I mean, you know, the line I like to use is they're confusing the musician with the uh, conductor. Conductor, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you must be up to date on Xi Jinping thought on music. That's good. This is... <laughs> exactly. It'll come eventually. <laughs> so, so what do you? Th- I mean, back to the plenum and. and Moving forward for the next year to the 20th Party Congress, I mean, normally, right, the the year before a Party Congress is a is a, a very, very politically sensitive and difficult year where you have the entire system is geared towards the the, the Party Congress and basically one not screwing up, yes, uh, and two anticipating where the people or persons making the decisions on promotions want you to go in yes. terms of policies, and so. In some way, usually it kind of freezes the system, right? So, so is there some risk of a fairly difficult year with China because clearly the economy is—I don't want to say struggling—but it's clearly not doing as well as they hoped. Yeah. Um, you know, they they seem to be continue to push pretty hard on the third 
tough battle of reducing financial risks. And, and specifically, I think Evergrande is the poster child of that right now. Yeah. But what do you think she believes needs to happen over the next year? And, and what do you think that means for sort of the stuff a lot of investors feel worried about around real estate, common prosperity? I mean, it, it just it just feels like for the first time in a while, things on the economic side, at least, look a little bit rickety right now. No, I, I agree with that general assessment. Equally important in my mind is how little the leadership and the economic technocrats seem to be rattled by that fact. In other right. words, we're, we're not seeing the stimulus wave. We're not seeing monetary policy adjustments in a significant way. There's a lot of steady as she goes. And, you know, that could change. We've got the Central Economic Work Conference, obviously, uh, in December, which will give us a sense of how they're thinking about next year. But, uh, you know, like so many other things, I think uh, we as watchers and, and the investment community and others, we're slow to sometimes break with old narratives, one of which is you must welcome a party Congress with very high growth, you know, and every signal coming out of the leadership is that they're they're not playing that game anymore, you know, and I, I think that's fairly strong. This also comes back to the issue, though, of what I mentioned earlier about the politics. You know, it's been quite striking to me, given what a momentous occasion is happening next year, how little in the analysis of the crackdowns, the tech lash, you know, these sort of things, property sector, how little attention is being paid to the political dimension. So, for example, if, if you look at sort of this issue that I raised a moment ago of the danger for she is not someone's going to stop him or unseat him, but this issue of, I think my sense is he views the model of the uh, the changeover next year as being the uh, the ninth party Congress, right? Where I believe there was something like 80% turnover in the central committee. This was the <laughs> 1969 during the middle of the cultural revolution. Yeah. And the party, the eighth party Congress was not five years before it was, there no, was quite was, a gap. Yeah. Huge gap. Yeah. And and so if he would like to sweep away, you know, that that kind of level of changeover, that means getting rid of the, a lot of the deadwood of the other constituent groups, let's call them. And I think his ability to do that is closely tied to whether they can criticize and, and you know, what are the KPIs that he uh, has put out for himself for this current term? And you just raised them. It's poverty alleviation, environmental improvement and quote unquote, guarding against financial risk. I think we can say on the first two, he's done very well. On the third, it's a bit of a disaster, right? So right. the message, and I'm told that, you know, this was sort of some of the discussion on the margins of Bay Daifa this year, was that, you know, you've got a year or arguably eight months because of the way the system does these things to get that grade on financial risk from a C minus D plus to an A. And, you know, poor Leofa, right? <laughs> In the role of having to, figure out how to make that happen operationally. And I think to your point, oftentimes we do get that paralysis as everybody's kind of looking over their shoulder. But if anything, I think it's more, these guys are more inclined to show their, you know, over-fulfilling the plan, if you will, in terms of representation and implementation. So the risk in my mind is not that the various crackdowns will calm down or smooth out. It's that in their zeal to look like they're doing what the boss wants them to do to hopefully be promoted, they might badly overcorrect. And that I think has applications for how they handle Evergrande and, and many of the other uh, associated um, crackdowns. That's an interesting point. And, uh, you know, one of the things I wonder about, because it, it just seems like she has been quite skillful at finding opportunity and what looks like messes. Uh -huh. And if we're looking at an evaluation in the last 30 years, 
sort of the historical resolution idea, certainly there's a lot to criticize about the economic model. I mean, they, they criticize it on a regular basis in terms of trying to transition to the new development concept, right? It, it, it's, right. it's effectively saying the old model doesn't work anymore. And, it, yes. and, and one, of the, one of the biggest problems it created was this, this massive debt problem for China. Yeah. Is there a, a cynical way of looking at it and saying, okay, you know, we have this, we being sort of she, the top of the party, we have a, a fair amount of confidence because we've done such a lot of so much work on hardening the system and the stability yeah. maintenance system that we can tolerate more stress than people think. Yes. And by letting these things get really stressed, does that help remove some of the deadwood in terms of sort of surfacing officials who might be promotable to actually look like they're kind of, you know, they were somehow culpable for some of the decisions that led to things like Evergrande or some of these other right. messes? And then that clears the way for other personnel moves? I think that's certainly part of it. I think that might be uh, adopting, you know, to sort of micro of a, uh, of a right. frame on it. I, I think where it's important is uh, from the perspective of, you know, again, this is she's political genius from my perspective, is the layering of these narratives and the buildup toward a major change or, 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 you know, major development. So, you know, why in the depths of the trade war did he start talking about a new long march, right? And hardship and sacrifice and all of these things, they're preparing the ground, right? Why, in some reason, why are they maintaining a COVID zero approach? There's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons in my mind is if indeed you feel you must fundamentally break with that old dirty economic model, which was largely export led, right? <laughs> and you want mm -hmm. dual circulation to work and you want these things, you know, why not keep the border closed and force the system to transition because it must, um, you know, so that the, there's a number of these things where I think, you know, again, I don't want, I, I don't like to claim that, you know, it's all some master plan, but, but I think there's a lot of thought that's gone into some of these policies. Right. But, but clearly, you know, things like the energy crisis, I mean, they clearly have, there are a lot of moving parts that can blow up pretty quickly. And oh, so I think to your, so. to your earlier point, you know, the politics are always in command in China. I think they're more in command this that now, but it, it does just feel like the, the risks or the downside risks on the economy are, are more, are, are greater than they've been in a while. Yeah. I mean, my sense is again, you know, what, what do the officials and particularly the economic technocrats see as the greatest risk? I, I think they think the greatest risk is overdoing it, not underdoing it at this stage. Interesting. So, well, thanks. A anything else you want to talk about? Um, no, I think that <laughs> kind yeah. of covers the runner front. I mean, I guess in, in summation, I would just say that, um, and it maybe kind of comes back nicely to U.S.-China relationship and so on, you know, discussing what we've just been discussing. I think if you're a senior U.S. policymaker, your working assumption has to be that China is more likely to get it right than to get it wrong, even if they only get it 30% right or 40 or, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. She is here and will be here for the foreseeable future. And therefore there won't be any change in the policies largely that he's articulated. And if we have those as our working assumptions, right, I think we will find ourselves framing a better policy. And I guess if it doesn't go that way, you could be quote unquote, pleasantly surprised or whatever you want to say, but, but is it really a pleasant surprise if, <laughs> if you have right. a leadership crisis in China? I mean, you know, this is another thing I think just in conclusion, uh, that I find very striking in the absence of information. And, and I think one of the uh, challenges for us uh, as, as watchers, you know, when a collective leadership system like we had before goes away, each one of those collective 
you know, all seven or nine, depending on the time frame of the standing committee members, they all had coteries under them and so on and so forth. In other words, there was a lot of places to tap in to get insight and compare notes mm-hmm. and so on. With Xi Jinping, it's a very small circle, clearly. You know, even uh, Kurt Campbell and other U.S. officials have discussed their frustration with not being able to, to get in the inner circle. And therefore, people just find themselves going to these memes, such as, well, there will inevitably be a succession crisis when Xi Jinping leaves the scene. You know, in my mind, the, the biggest opportunity for a massive succession crisis in, in the history of the PRC was Mao's death, right? And yet they managed to find a way, largely through Deng Xiaoping, but, but I think in general, because there was a collective understanding that this whole thing's going to unravel if we don't right. you know, get it together. So I'm not so worried about that, nor am I worried about an imminent invasion of Taiwan, but that's probably another podcast. <laughs> that was a whole, a whole different podcast. And so um, no, well, look, thank you so much. It's really great, as always, to talk to you. And uh, I do hope I can get you back on as a guest at some point. Always glad uh, to do so anytime, Bill. And, you know, your newsletter, in my mind, is is the best thing out there in terms of uh, keeping me up to speed and uh, substantively informed every day. Thank you. I didn't I didn't pay him to say that. Just to clear, <laughs> but, um, great. Thank you, Chris. You have been listening to the Cynicism Podcast by Bill Bishop, author of the Cynicism Newsletter. You can read more about this in other episodes, as well as sign up for the newsletter at cynicism.com. That is S-I-N-O-C-I-S-M.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a positive review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help. Thanks to Seven Morris for his editing help, and to you for listening. <laughs>